This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. Hostage diplomacy doesn't happen to everyone, but it can happen to anyone. That's Darren Nair, host of the podcast Hostage Diplomacy. As he says, anyone working or travelling abroad can become a victim, including these Australian citizens currently being held in China. There's concern that an Australian Chinese man who's been missing in China for five days has been arrested by the Chinese government. The Department of Foreign Affairs says it's seeking information from Chinese authorities about Yang Hung Jun, but they wouldn't elaborate. Businessman Nick Coyle has spent two years hoping diplomacy can help free his partner, Chung Lei. Ms Chung, a business news anchor for the Chinese government's English TV network, was tried in a closed court in late March on allegations of supplying state secrets to foreigners. On this rear vision, on the back of the Brittany Griner story, we'll look at what happens when states take foreign citizens hostage. The sentence handed down by a Russian court to basketball star Brittany Griner is almost as harsh as it could be. Griner's received a nine-year sentence for importing drugs to Russia despite telling the court during an emotional address that she'd made an honest mistake. The two-time Olympic gold medalist was discovered carrying cannabis-infused cartridges at a Moscow airport earlier this year. The two countries say they will use diplomatic channels to discuss potential prisoner exchanges. The US has already highlighted that Griner's sentence was wrongful and exorbitant. Taking hostages for political and military reasons goes back at least as far as ancient Rome. But we'll pick up the modern story in Iran. This was an event quite different from modern hostage diplomacy, but it galvanised the Western world and set a path for successive Iranian governments to follow. The year is 1979, and Iran's ruler, the Shah, supported by the US, had been forced to flee the country after a revolution brought an Islamic government to power. Well, the event that the United States has always feared in Iran has now taken place. 400 armed students have taken over the US embassy and are holding diplomats hostage. They're demanding that Washington send back the Shah from America, where he's undergoing cancer treatment. The hostages are apparently in the main building. They're supposed, according to the students, to, to be resting in one room, to have been given food and water. The students say they will not release the hostages until uh, the Shah has been sent back by the US government to Iran to stand trial. And that's really where it stands at the moment. The Iran hostage crisis was a devastating event in the public imagination of the American people. Hi, I'm David Farber. I'm a professor of history at the University of Kansas in the United States. It started in November 1979 when 66 American embassy personnel were taken hostage by a kind of ragtag crew of Iranian students and revolutionaries who I think had no particular agenda when they first took over, but the event spiraled rapidly out of control and it would take some 444 days before all the American hostages were freed. And it was just disastrous for President Carter, who was president at that time, and was really a knock on Americans' sense of who they were in the world and what was happening outside the United States' borders. The Iranian hostage crisis really began out of the fervor of the Iranian Revolution. So at the very beginning of 1979, the longtime Shah of Iran was overthrown by a people's revolution. And it wasn't clear at first who would take charge of that government. But what was clear to most Iranians was that the United States had for some 26 years avidly supported the Shah of Iran. 
So from numerous quarters of the Iranian people, there was a lot of hostility against the United States. And that hostility kind of brewed and boiled and churned. There had been protests outside the gates of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran for months. But on that November 4th day in 1979, the gates were breached and people stormed into the embassy grounds and a kind of skeleton crew of American diplomats were suddenly taken hostage by these Iranian revolutionaries and dissidents who wanted to show their fierce displeasure with the United States, especially because many of these Iranians believed that the United States was still offering succor and support to the overthrown Shah of Iran, who had just recently been allowed to enter the United States for medical reasons. What happened to the hostages during that more than a year that they were held captive? At first, 66 of of the Americans, basically the entire embassy staff, was taken hostage. But within a very short time, the Iranian government trying to show its kind of solidarity with revolutionary movements around the world. Remember, this is the age of decolonization. Freed all the African-American members of the embassy staff. Almost all of the hostages that remained were men and overwhelmingly white men indeed. There were only two hostages, both of them white women, who were not men. And at that point, early in the days, the treatment of the hostages was not good, but it was nor nor was it horrendous. Most of them were blindfolded. They were not given hot water or showers or treatment of any kind. It wasn't really clear how long they were going to be held hostage. So it was kind of an impromptu, unplanned hostage taking. But within a few weeks, as things really got worse and worse. Many of the hostages found themselves in solitary confinement. The food that they were given was often of poor quality. They were beaten sometimes for speaking or talking to one another. So while there wasn't a a kind of murderous rage displayed against these hostages, conditions were harsh, unpleasant, and very nerve-wracking, I think, for the hostages who never knew what was going to happen next. The plight of the hostages was brought home every day in America on a late-night TV news show, America Held Hostage, later called Nightline, created to cover the crisis. In the United States, the hostage-taking from really the beginning was seen as a, a real slap in the face of the United States government and indeed of the American people. And President Jimmy Carter kind of threw himself into that by putting himself front and center and saying that he would bring all the Americans home from Iran. He made himself kind of the center of the effort to bring them home, which probably politically was not a wise decision. And quickly, Americans rallied around the idea that these fellow countrymen needed to be brought home. And within a fairly short period of time, campaigns of solidarity grew all over the United States. There'd be talk radio shows, there'd be television programming trying to describe what was happening with these hostages. It really became kind of Headline news day after day after day in the United States. And the American people responded and they showed solidarity. Many Americans tied yellow ribbons, sort of based on a famous old American song, around trees or around their car antennas, around their doorknobs, trying to show that they cared. So it it was really a big deal in the United States. I mean, I remembered I was a kid and it was it was something like we were indignant. We were angry. How dare these Iranians take our embassy members hostage. I mean, everybody, everybody was aware of what was going on. Freedom for the 52 American hostages 
now appears to depend on completion of one of the largest financial transactions in history, the return of almost $9,000 million American worth of Iranian assets. After a champagne toast in the Oval Office with his wife and closest aides, President Carter went on television and radio at 5 a.m. here at the White House. The State Department already had begun telephoning the families of the 52 hostages with the news that an agreement had been signed. Well, it took 444 days, but indeed after failed efforts at a bilateral level, failed efforts at a multilateral level, the Iranians finally started to speak more openly to one of their few allies in the world, which was the Algerian revolutionary government, fellow Muslims, fellow revolutionaries, who volunteered to act as middlemen in the relationship between the United States and the Iranians, and indeed were fair brokers in that relationship. And I think it was because the Iranians saw a dwindling amount of political capital in holding the American personnel for so long, the Algerians were able to finally negotiate a deal. And finally, after the Carter administration was out of office by just minutes, the 52 remaining American hostages were finally freed. Hostage diplomacy has come a long way from the crude and chaotic kidnapping of those American diplomats in Iran 40 years ago. But what do we mean by hostage diplomacy and how does it differ from other kinds of hostage taking? So hostage diplomacy is when state governments use their criminal justice system to take foreigners hostage. So one of the differences between hostage diplomacy and other forms of hostage taking is that the perpetrator is a government. It's the national government of a country. And essentially, it's a hostage taking that's executed through the color and guise of law. I'm Danny Gilbert. I'm a fellow in U.S. foreign policy and international security at Dartmouth College. Some of the key features of hostage diplomacy are that the perpetrators are most often authoritarian states. So the, the most common perpetrators of hostage diplomacy right now are Russia, China, Iran, and Venezuela. And these cases proceed through the criminal justice system of those countries. The foreigner is arrested, they are tried with a crime, they are convicted, and then sentenced to a punishment. Normally, the person is accused of espionage or something similar, like a plot to overthrow the government. And these are typically dual national citizens or people with lots of experience working in the country where they're arrested. So it's often people like journalists, academics, people who work for non-government organizations. And they are often doing the kinds of activities that an autocratic or authoritarian government would consider threatening. The last thing that distinguishes hostage diplomacy from other forms of hostage taking is that state governments rarely make their demands explicitly. They usually only imply or state privately what they want from the foreign government in exchange for releasing the person who's been imprisoned. Has this kind of activity become more frequent recently or is this something that's always been with us? 
It's an old crime. It's been around for quite some time, but it appears to have dramatically increased in the last decade or so. And there might be a few factors that are leading to that recent increase in hostage diplomacy cases. First of all, we have a term for it. And so now that we've given it a very specific label, we might just be seeing it and recognizing it more often. But there's a few geopolitical reasons that we might also be seeing rises in these cases. There's been a return to great power politics. For the last 20 years, the Western world has been engaged in a global war on terror. And so a lot of the hostage taking that was taking place were kidnappings by terrorists and insurgents, the kind of non-state actors who use kidnapping as a tool in their insurgency. But now with a shift in what the conflicts are that we're paying attention to on the world stage, we might be seeing this kind of hostage taking a little bit more as authoritarian states use it as a tool in their asymmetrical power conflicts with Western powers. And one more reason that it might be increasing in recent years is that autocrats are learning that it works. Is it invariably the case that the person arrested is innocent? Or is it occasionally the case that they have done something that's illegal in that country? There's often a, a mix here. And the the plausible deniability of the arbitrariness of the charge is central to how these cases work. So the vast majority of these cases involve charges of espionage. And usually those are completely trumped up charges. The states and the individual prisoners deny them vehemently. And it's really just an excuse by a government that feels threatened by foreigners. An espionage charge is quite convenient because a lot of the evidence to prove that someone is a spy is the kind of thing that would never be shared in the public domain anyway. But sometimes the victims of hostage diplomacy have broken local laws. So Brittany Griner is a good case of that. She was carrying hash oil in her luggage, but what she was carrying was 0.7 grams of hash oil in her suitcase. That is a completely minor amount of drugs that would be considered a personal use misdemeanor charge in most countries in the world. Even in Russia, the amount of drugs that she was carrying would not come with the kind of sentence that she has received. But instead, the Russians have charged her with international drug trafficking. So they have vastly exaggerated what she actually did and the law that she actually broke so that they can hold her for nine years. One of the most recent high-profile cases involved Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British-Iranian citizen released in March this year after six years spent largely in an Iranian prison. The British-Iranian woman Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe says she was a pawn of the British and Iranian governments during her six years of detention. The charity worker was released late last week from house arrest in Tehran after the UK government paid off a debt it owed to Iran dating back to the 1970s. Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe has told a news conference after returning home to the UK that her release should have come much earlier. I was told many, many times that, oh, we're going to get you home. That never happened. So now here we are. What's happened now should have happened six years ago. Nazreen Zagari Ratcliffe is a British citizen, an innocent British citizen, and a charity worker from London. She was taken hostage by the Iranian authorities in Tehran 
when visiting her parents in April 2016 with her one-year-old daughter, Gabriela. She was detained for almost six years and was finally released in March this year, a few days after the UK government settled a 40-year-old £400 million debt it owed Iran. What this means is Nazanin was held hostage by the Iranian regime to force the UK government to pay this outstanding debt. I campaigned closely with Nazanin's family, especially her husband, Richard. Given, in the end, the government paid the debt, why didn't they do it sooner? There was an inquiry launched by the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee to ask just that question. I think they feel that by doing so would encourage Iran and other countries to take more hostages. I think they just lack the political will. So once Richard's campaigning became a political problem for the UK government, he was literally on hunger strike in front of the UK Foreign Office in uh, October and November last year. And it was a month or so after that when Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, who's now running to become the next British Prime Minister, put the wheels in motion to pay the debt. So I think the main reason is there's a lack of political will. But the reason they will tell you in Parliament is that they believe this will encourage more citizens being taken hostage. Another recent case that gained a lot of attention involved two Canadian men arrested in China and the daughter of the founder of Huawei, also the company's chief financial officer, who was arrested in Canada on US fraud charges. Well, the timing is certainly curious. As an executive from the Chinese tech company Huawei faced court in Canada, Chinese authorities detained a former Canadian diplomat in Beijing. The Hong Kong-based Michael Kovrig, who now works for the International Crisis Group, was on a routine visit to Beijing when he was taken into custody. A Canadian entrepreneur detained in China for more than 900 days on spying allegations has today been sentenced to 11 years jail and deportation after an earlier secret trial. In late 2018, Meng Wanzhou, who is the Chinese CFO of Huawei, the telecom company, was arrested in an airport in Canada. She was arrested on an extradition request from the United States for violation of Iran sanctions and conspiracy to commit bank fraud. So as soon as she was arrested and put into house arrest in one of her mansions in Vancouver, the Chinese government arrested two Canadian citizens who were working in China, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. And they were arrested in different parts of China on the same day, both for espionage charges that were completely trumped up and bogus. There's no evidence that either of them actually committed any sort of espionage. And while Meng was living in her mansion on house arrest, the Michaels were denied consular access. They spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. It was just completely egregious what they went through. While the Chinese government never said explicitly that they arrested the Michaels in exchange for Meng, it was pretty clear that these cases were linked because of the timing. So the two of them were arrested right after she had been arrested in Canada. And any time there was any sort of update in her case, a hearing, an announcement, a delay, 
there was some sort of equivalent movement in the two Michaels cases. And so the tit for tat nature of the way that these cases were handled made it very clear to any observer that it was obviously linked and that China was holding the two of them hostage. So in the fall of 2021, the U.S. government reached a deferred prosecution agreement that essentially meant that Meng admitted guilt to the charges and then was able to be released. And as soon as she was released from her house arrest in Canada, what do you know? The two Michaels come home hours later from China. While governments ultimately hold the key to unlocking the prison door for their citizens held in foreign jails, there are other players involved, the media and the families of the hostages. Darren Nair, host of the podcast Hostage Diplomacy. I've been campaigning to free people held hostage and unjustly detained around the world for over six years now. I campaign with their families and I help in any way possible. So during my time campaigning with these families, I noticed a few problems that they experienced. First of all, they often struggle to get the media attention they needed. If they were lucky to get interviewed by a large news outlet, they would probably get about five to eight minutes airtime at most. And that's not enough to tell their story. There was also no playbook for the families with loved ones taken hostage abroad to follow. They all had to reinvent the wheel and this takes time and resources which they don't have. And they were also treated like victims, as if they would break at any point. Yes, they were experiencing a lot of trauma. It was the worst period of their lives, but they were also very strong, resilient, and determined to reunite their families. So some news outlets tend to focus on the pain experienced by these families and ignore their resilience, their persistence. What about the role of the media in these kinds of situations? There are a bunch of different factors that affect how much media attention one of these cases receive. The first and perhaps most obvious is the intentional publicity campaigns launched by the hostages, family, community, employer, or other related groups. So some hostage families really want to make this public. They want to get as much attention as possible for the case, usually to pressure their own national government to get involved, to pressure their own national government to make the concessions that it would take to bring their loved one home. But there's also a bunch of factors that are specifically related to the prisoner themselves or other factors about the conditions of their arrest that affect how much attention a case will receive. So there is a phenomenon known as the missing white woman syndrome, which suggests that female white victims of abductions receive far more media coverage than male victims of abduction or people of color who are taken hostage. There's a mix about whether or not that applies only in the domestic context or if that has effects in international media as well. But the hostages' race and gender can have a really big effect on how much attention their case receives. Some of my other research looks at what I call deservingness. So essentially, whether an individual believes that the person taken hostage was responsible for putting him or herself into danger, 
will affect whether or not that individual believes that the government should expend resources to bring them home. So in other words, if you're an American citizen who thinks that Brittany Griner broke a law, should not have been in Russia in the first place, then you're probably the same kind of American who opposes efforts by the Biden administration to make concessions to bring her home. And so how you think about the blameworthiness or deservingness of an individual hostage will affect the sympathy that you have for their case and the kind of attention that you're willing to pay to their plight. Well, from my experience and the families I've interviewed, in hostage diplomacy cases, media coverage can literally save the life of a hostage. Media coverage gives the hostage more attention and to an extent it does raise the price of the hostage, but it also ensures the hostage is better protected. That is true with Nazarene's case in Iran. Even though she wasn't treated well in Evin prison, she was still one of the best treated hostages in the prison because of the international media coverage her case received. Now, when the hostage taker is a non-state actor, like Somali pirates or a terrorist group, families tend to request a media blackout, which can benefit the hostage. So German-American journalist Michael Scott Moore, who was held hostage by Somali pirates for 977 days, is a good example here. The Somali pirates would get him to pose for a video, pirates would be behind him holding AK-47s, and they would publish this video, and they would then listen to the BBC Somali service to hear about it, to see if they mentioned Michael. But because there was a media blackout, there was nothing. And that really frustrated the Somali pirates. They basically wanted a ransom of 20 million US dollars to be paid for Michael's release. And after 977 days, he was released because his mother coordinated some organizations in the US and Germany to raise about 1.6-ish million US dollars, which is a lot less than what they asked for. In the case of a non-state actor, a media blackout actually helps you. When it comes to a state actor, countries like Iran, China, Venezuela, Russia, media coverage has the opposite effect. It can make sure you're protected. But governments tend to tell you not to go public because it makes it harder for them to negotiate as the price of the hostage is then raised with more attention. What can governments do about the wrongful detention of their citizens? Doesn't agreeing to demands, whatever they are, encourage this kind of state hostage taking? The data on whether or not making concessions to hostage takers incentivizes more hostage taking is very limited and a little bit mixed. It's kind of difficult to evaluate whether or not the concessions are incentivizing future attacks. But one thing that we know is that claims of a no concessions approach hasn't ever stopped hostage taking. So maybe making concessions is going to cause more, but pulling back on those concessions is not going to make this violation of international law go away. And so democratic states should be working on other kinds of policies to prevent these attacks from happening and to punish the perpetrators. And so how can we keep our citizens from traveling to dangerous places in the first place is one side of this approach. And then how can democratic countries actively punish states like Russia, China, Iran, and Venezuela for carrying out 
these hostage takings through their criminal justice systems. It's very difficult to do that in the international system of states. There is state sovereignty. Everything is done through states' own criminal justice systems. So the kinds of things that might be available to punish a kidnapper might not be available when we're talking about states. But sanctions are one thing that democracies can do against state hostage takers. Danny Gilbert, a fellow in U.S. foreign policy and international security at Dartmouth College. The other guests were Darren Nair, creator and host of the podcast Hostage Diplomacy, and David Farber, professor of history at the University of Kansas. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Emrys Cronin for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.